The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So if you take your Bibles and open them to chapter 23 in Matthew... Uh, we've reached the conclusion of this chapter, which has really been an eye-opener uh, for us. It shows a, a side of Jesus that many people think never existed. We're used to a picture of Jesus that is of meekness and gentleness and tolerance for the attitudes and the lifestyles of all people. And we consider that to be the compassionate Jesus. And yet we learn from this passage that the greatest kindness that can ever be shown to anyone is the intolerance of their sin. Kindness is to command people to repent of their sins and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved because without that, every person is going to suffer the wrath of God, the wrath of Almighty God. And so the kindness and the compassion that Jesus showed in this chapter was to point out the wickedness of the religious leaders and to tell people that they needed to turn away from the lies that they were telling and to turn to the power of the Almighty God. And so what Jesus did was to point out sin in this passage. And we've noticed that in the previous messages, how that he did that, he did it by pronouncing eight woes against eight practices, against eight perversions, against eight hypocrisies that would send people... Send men and women to hell. Now today what I would like to do is to return to the last woe that we find in chapter or in verse number 29. And I spoke briefly on this last week, but we're going to change the message up just a little bit and uh, make some application of this last woe that Jesus gave the people. And what I want to show you today is how that God can be fed up with man's wickedness. That the sin of man can become so prevalent, so heinous, so great that God is fed up with it and he will not tolerate sin anymore. And I want to show you that it's possible to take God to his limit and then God's judgment will fall. And yet we find that when that happens that God does not relish judgment. God does not want to punish people. God is interested in the salvation of men and so he's not interested in sending people to hell. And the thing that sends people to hell is their own stubbornness and rebellion. And so when a soul goes to hell, he'll have all eternity to think about this, that God sent his son into the world to die for our sins. He gave us this free grace. He gave us the offer of salvation in him, and yet people turn away. And when people go to hell, they'll have all of eternity to think over this, that God was so gracious to send his son. And so when a person dies and goes to hell, he has no one to blame but himself. Now I'd like you to look at chapter 23, and I'm going to ask you to stand once again as we read God's word. We're going to start at verse 29 and read to the end of the chapter. Verse number 29, Jesus speaks to these religious leaders, and he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechias, whom he slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. 
Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Father, thank you for the reading of your word. I ask you, Lord, to help us as we bring the message today. Speak to our hearts with the truths that you would have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The last woe that Jesus spoke in this passage was the woe of judgment for killing the prophets. Now, obviously, as Jesus spoke to the people in this crowd, there, there was none of them, I mean, none of these religious leaders that were actually guilty of taking a preacher of righteousness and doing to them what verse number 35 says, to kill a, a prophet of God between the altar and the temple. There wasn't anybody in the crowd who had actually done that. And yet Jesus speaks to these people and he says, Woe unto you, you hypocrites. And he accuses them of this very thing. Now I want to show you something in the first point today, how that Jesus knew that they were guilty of the same sins of their fathers. So first today we want to look at the depth of man's depravity. That Jesus could look into the hearts of these people and he could see the depravity that was in their hearts. Now, what they had done was they claimed that they honored the prophets. Uh, they rehearsed the stories of the prophets in the Old Testament. They knew those stories. They revered the prophets for their courage and in standing up against an evil generation. And these people in Jesus' time, the leaders then, they knew how wicked that Israel was in the past they knew what they had done in going into idolatry. They knew the necessity of prophets being sent to them and speaking to them, preaching to them, telling them to repent of their sins, of their idolatry, and turn back to the living God and follow God's laws. And they knew that in the past that Israel had gone so far into sin that they'd actually begun to worship the gods of the Canaanites. And they had sacrificed their own children in the fires that burned in the valley of Hinnom that was just outside the city of Jerusalem. In verse number 33, Jesus said that the damnation of hell would be upon them. And the word that he used for hell there was the word Gehenna. And it referred to that same awful valley outside of Jerusalem where in times past they did make those sacrifices. Well, the religious leaders in the time of Jesus, they were against those practices. I mean, at this time, they were strictly monotheistic. They never would have thought of worshiping a Gentile God. And so they honored the prophets for the stand that they took. And they built shrines to the prophets. And they decorated their tombs in remembrance of them. They had the utmost respect for the Old Testament prophets. They continually said that. And that was because those prophets did stand so strongly against idolatry. And so these people of Jesus' time, they claimed to stand with those prophets. They claimed to have the same courage as the prophets because actually they were the ones, these Pharisees were the ones that had called the people back to observance of God's laws. They were very strenuous in teaching the people about observing God's laws and coming to compliance with what Jehovah said. And there wasn't anybody else in Israel that did that. The Pharisees stood on that and they said, we're like our fathers, we'll fight on all fronts against those who would ever dare to defame the name of our holy God. And yet we find here that Jesus says that these people were hypocrites. He said that their words were false and they were pretenders as successors to the prophets. And he knew that because he could look into their hearts and he could see what they were about to do. They had just been in the presence of the greatest prophet that God had ever given. John the Baptist was sent to them and Jesus said he was the greatest prophet that ever lived. There is no prophet as great as John the Baptist. And yet it was these very same Pharisees that would not listen to John the Baptist when he came. They tried everything that they could to stop his ministry. They resisted him on all fronts. And when John told them that they needed to repent, they wouldn't do it. And when, he came to, when they came to his baptism, John refused to baptize them. And he told them the same thing that Jesus said. He said, you are a generation of vipers. Now, John had come in the spirit 
of the Old Testament prophets. He came in the spirit of Elijah. He came in the spirit of Jeremiah. And he came like Zechariah. And he called the people to repentance. But contrary to their claim that they would heed the prophets and they would honor the prophets, they refused to do what John said and they rejected him. And so they rejected this vital messenger that came to prepare their hearts for the reception of the Messiah. And then when John was beheaded by Herod, none of these people, none of these leaders shed any tears for John the Baptist. So there wasn't any remorse. They were glad to get rid of him. And so they had just demonstrated by that attitude of their hearts, very graphically, the very thing that Jesus says about them. He told them what they thought of the prophets and what they would do to them if they had lived in that same time. But even more than that, Jesus looked into their hearts, and being the omniscient God, he knew exactly what they were going to do just two days hence from the time that he spoke this. Not only was John the Baptist killed, but they would take Jesus to the cross, and they would crucify him. He was the Messiah that they had waited thousands of years to come, and in just two days they would hang him on a cross. As he ever since that God had made this promise to Abraham to make him the father of many nations, this promise to the Jews had been set. There will be a Messiah that would come. And in so many prophecies of the Old Testament, that was repeated over and over again, that, that the coming of Jesus was announced. But then when Jesus finally arrived, and when John declared him to be the Lord God, the Jews rejected him. And so in the ministry of Jesus, at every turn, at every miracle, they opposed him. They said that he was from Satan. When he forgave sins, they said, you are usurping the authority of God. And when he went into the temple to preach, they said, you have no right to be here. And they wanted to throw him out. They also accused him of breaking Moses' law. And so they were determined with everything that was in them to get rid of him. And so he looked into their hearts and he saw that depravity. And he saw that their hearts were, were consumed with the darkness of sin. They were secret adulterers. They were blasphemers. They were extortionists. And their hearts were eaten up with hatred. And Jesus even called that the sin of murder. And so they were murderous people, even though they said, we stand with the prophets. Had we been living in the time of the prophets, we would do just what the prophets did. But he knew their hearts, and he knew that it was all a lie. And so these inward feelings that they had, the sin and the murder, the adultery that was in their heart, all of those things would become outward in just a short time, and they would demand the death of Jesus, who is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And so in verse number 31, he said, You are witnesses unto yourselves that you are the children of those that killed the prophets. And then he says this amazing thing in verse number 32. He says, Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Now you might not understand that statement, but what Jesus is speaking of is sin and wrath and judgment. Many times in the scriptures, the Bible speaks of sin and wrath and judgment as a cup that is about to be filled. Now, the Old Testament prophets spoke about this. They spoke of the cup of God's divine wrath. The book of Revelation speaks of the cup of wrath. It says that the unrighteous will drink from that cup. In Revelation 14.10, this is what the Apostle John wrote. He said, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And if you'll look just a few pages over into Matthew chapter 26, here we find the scriptures also speak of this cup. And this was just before Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse number 39 of chapter 26, it says, And he went a little further... And he fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now that cup that Jesus was speaking of was a cup that was filled up to the brim with God's wrath and with God's judgment against sin. And the cross is the place where that judgment of God was poured out, where the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus 
because he had taken upon him the sins of all those that would believe in him. And so that wrath of judgment, those sins, is all filled up within this cup that was about to be poured out on Jesus on the cross. And so when Jesus says here, fill ye up the measure of your fathers, he's speaking about sin. And he's speaking about the cup of sin and the cup of God's wrath that will be filled up to the place where it can be no longer contained. And when it reaches the place where it won't hold any more, then that cup is poured out in the most horrible judgment than any person can ever imagine. It is actually far worse than anything that you can imagine because there is nobody that has any idea what hell is going to be like. <clears throat> I know that there are some people who say that they are going through hell because of circumstances in their life, some grief, some problem, some illness, whatever it might be. They're, they're suffering and they say, I'm going through hell. And they could only wish they can only wish that whatever they experience is the worst thing that they will ever experience because they have no idea what hell is really like. Now, Jesus knows their hearts. He knew their hearts just like he knows the heart of every person here. And you may not want to believe it, and you may not want to accept it, you may not realize it, but the Bible says that your heart is exceedingly sinful. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All the, these evil things come from within and defile the man. Now you might think of yourself as a pretty good person, but you have in your heart all of the potential to be a serial killer, to be a child molester, to be a pornographer, to be the worst criminal in the darkest cell of San Quentin. All of that evil is in the human heart. And the Bible teaches us that every single one of us is depraved. Our mind, our conscience, and our will is depraved. Now the prosperity preachers will tell you that in your heart is all the potential for greatness. That in your heart is the potential to speak good things into existence. That in your heart is the desire to aspire to the heights of heaven. And all that really needs to be done is for you to release the potential that's in your heart and those things will come true. But that is not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says. Now that kind of nonsense will sell millions of books but that's not what's in your heart. Sin is in your heart, and the blackness of hell is in your heart. And I can promise you that if I were to write a book about that, about what God really says, contra Osteen, that if I were to write a book about that, it's not going to be on the New York Times bestseller list. And that's because people don't want to know what's actually in their heart. They don't not want to know the potential that's in their heart, that their heart holds the wickedness, the wickedest things, the wickedest sins imaginable. Now notice how forcefully that Jesus speaks. He said to these men, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Not very nice, is that? Serpents, vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Now, once you get the full effect of this statement, Jesus had already called them hypocrites. They were fakers. And these words are a demonstration of that hypocrisy. So he calls them vipers. Now, the viper that he's speaking of was a common little snake in that part of the world. And there were many of these in the land of Israel, and they were very deceptive. They looked like a small stick. And so if you went to gather up some firewood to get some sticks together. It wasn't uncommon to pick up one of these little vipers thinking it was a stick and, and then to uh, gather it all together with your, with your firewood and then that viper would come out and bite you and the bite of that viper was very poisonous. Now you remember that the Apostle Paul, when he was shipwrecked on the island of Malta, that he gathered up some sticks and he was going to make a fire and there was a viper that came out of the fire and bit Paul on the hand. 
And those people on Malta, they looked at that and they expected that Paul would swell up and he would die because of that bite. But as they looked on Paul, Paul just shook the viper off into the fire because God miraculously protected him. But Jesus' point in this passage is that these, these men, these leaders were deceptive like those snakes, only the people had no protection from them. And when they preached their, their doctrines, when they, when they preached things that weren't correct, the people injected or, or ingested that poison, I might say. They ingested the poison and they were deceived. And so they were headed for the same hell as their teachers. Now, what I want to point out to you with this is that these men were very close to filling up that cup of wrath, that the sins were accumulating on them. Israel's sins were accumulating, and finally it would reach the point where God was going to take it no longer. And the Pharisees were the descendants of the men that killed the prophets, and they were just continuing those evil practices. And God was not going to stand for it very much longer. And so you see in verse number 38 that Jesus said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And there he's speaking of the temple. And it was simply a representation of that whole religious system that God was about to take everything away. That the cup of wrath was filling up. And then finally God would bring it down in utter destruction. Now, do you remember that Jesus turned over the tables in the temple? And do you remember that he cursed the fig tree so that it died? And those things were just symbols. Symbols that God was angry. And he was about to take everything away. And so they would lose their temple, and they would lose Jerusalem, and they did. In less than 40 years, Jerusalem was raised. It was left in a heap of rubble. The stones of the temple were completely thrown down. It was completely destroyed and so desolate, made so desolate that it couldn't be known that such a magnificent building had ever stood on that site. And today, the whole thing is, the whole thing that's left there, all that's left there, I should say, is a retaining wall. A retaining wall that keeps the temple mount from crumbling. And that's where the Jews gather all of the time to pray and ask God to give the temple back to them. And incidentally, that's why the Jews don't sacrifice today. They have no place. They have no temple for their sacrifices. And this is what happens when the cup of wrath is filled up. It just keeps filling, and it reaches the brim until God says, no more. The cup will hold no more of sin, and God says, judgment is coming. Judgment is going to fall. It's going to be poured out. And I want to say to you today that that is what can happen to America. And I want to say that's what can happen to you. That America is filling up the cup of sin and we're building up to the wrath of God. And we're only going to go so far and then God's going to say, no more. And you can see how that everything godly in America has been turned upside down. And you can see how that we call evil good. I mean, the worst sins that are imaginable, crimes against nature and crimes against our own bodies, are declared to be right and for our good. Someone told me the other day that, that in a Baptist church near here that people wear rainbow bracelets and celebrate the love of gays and lesbians. Can you imagine that in a Baptist church they would call evil good? And then on the other hand, what is good... The gospel of Jesus Christ, people today are now calling an offense. Even worse than ever before, they call it an offense. A few weeks ago, at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, there was a cadet who posted a Bible verse outside of his dorm room, and that verse was Galatians 2.20, in which the Apostle Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And he posted that outside of his dorm room, and in just a very short time there was a complaint, and in a non-order order, he was told to take it down. And you know what they said? You know what the complaint was? They said that's racism. And they said that is disrespectful. And they called it fundamentalist Christian tyranny. But you know something else? Some of the cadets 
posted verses from the Quran, and they weren't removed. This is what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 5, verse 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And that's what we're doing. Every evil has become good, and now good has become evil. And you can only take that so far. Eventually, you're going to fill up the cup of God's wrath, and judgment will be poured out. Now, I want you to look what Jesus said that he would do in verse 34. He said, Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. So despite what the prophets or what these people had done in the past, Jesus was going to send them more. He was going to send them more of them. Now just as an aside here, this is another of the many places where Jesus declared himself to be God. And you say, well, how did he do that? How do you see that in the passage? Well, he said, said, I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and scribes. He's the one that sends them. He's the one who sent all of those Old Testament prophets to the people. He was the one that spoke to Moses in the burning bush. And he was the one that said, there's going to be another prophet that will arise like Moses, and that was him. So he declares his deity in this passage, and he says he's going to send them more prophets and more wise men and more scribes. And that was a reference to the apostles and a reference to the writers of the New Testament who would become the scribes that would give them more of the word of God. And that is a reference to the preachers of the gospel that would come to preach to them when, they, when, they, when he was gone. And you know what they would do? Well, just as they'd done in the past, they would scourge them in the synagogues. Read Acts 5, verse 40, and you'll see that they beat the apostles for preaching the gospel of Christ. And then Jesus said they would go beyond beating them. He said some of them they would kill and they would crucify. Well, he says kill and crucify. What does he mean by that? What's the difference between kill and crucify? Well, I think what it means, the killing is something that would be obvious to the Jews, that they would kill these prophets, these men, these preachers that are sent to them. They would kill them in the way that the Jews were used to. That's stoning. And in Acts 7, we find that Stephen was stoned, and I don't think that he was the only one of those early Christians that was stoned. And then he said, some of them you will crucify. And what he meant by that is that you'll turn them over to the Romans, to the Gentiles, and they'll kill those prophets and those preachers just like they killed Christ. And you wonder, well, why would he send them more prophets when he knew what they were going to do? Why would he send them more prophets? Well, you need to get a grip on your seat right here because you might not like it. You see what he told them? He said to go ahead and fill up the cup of sin. That's what he said in verse 32. Fill ye up the measure of your fathers. Now you're not going to like this, but there comes a time when you pass the point of no return. He's talking here about rejecting and rejecting, and at some point God is going to set you on a course from which he will not let you retreat. Now you see, it takes, it takes the mercy and the grace of God to give you repentance and faith. Did you know that? It takes God's mercy and his grace to reach out to you because you're not going to come to him. He reaches out to you in mercy and in grace. And one of the things that God does is that he restrains sin in your life so that you don't fill up this cup of wrath too quickly. You understand what I'm saying? He restrains sin in your life and he gives you the opportunity to come to him in repentance and faith. But there comes a time when God will stop all of his efforts to restrain sin in you and he won't do it any longer. And so he finally comes to the place where he says, go ahead, go ahead and fill it up. Or in another metaphor, he says, dig your hole a little bit deeper. And that's what God allows you to do. He allows you to keep piling up sin and going into it deeper until it approaches the brim and you have nothing to slow it down. You have rejected him too long, and then you pass the point of no return. You know, I've known people who say that, oh, I don't want to get saved right now. 
I'll wait. I don't want to get saved right now. I, I want to have my fill of sin. I want to do what I want to do. And then when I get close to death, when I know it's the end, then I'll turn to God. Then I'll come to him. But you can't count on that because you don't come to God at any time. God sets the time. And God may say to you, you've gone too far. You've gone too far, and I'm not going to let you come. And then you die, and even worse destruction comes upon you. What I'm trying to tell you now is that you can sin away the day of grace. Did you know that? I want you to look in your Bible in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4, and here Paul is writing about false teachers just like Jesus was talking to in Matthew. And he's speaking of those that follow them and follow these false teachers and just go on and continue to live in sin. Now notice what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 1. He says, Now the Spirit, and that's the Holy Spirit of course, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, do you see that? You can sin so much that your conscience can be seared as with a hot iron. Now, what he's talking about there is cauterizing a nerve, deadening a nerve. That sin can become so bad and so persistent that eventually you, you, you lose sensitivity to it. You have no conscience about it. And so you go deeper and deeper into it because you've lost the sense of what's right and wrong. And you know this, that God has given every one of us a conscience to know the difference between right and wrong. And there's a lot of stuff that you will not do because you have this conscience in you that says, don't do it. And God gave all people that. And it's the reason why that we don't, after this service, go out and kill each other. It's because God has put a conscience in us to know the difference between right and wrong. But what happens when you lose the sense of what's right and wrong? What happens to you when the conscience has been seared, has been cauterized, been cut off, when the nerve has been deadened and, no, and you no longer know the difference between right and wrong? Well, I can tell you exactly what happens. This is when we start justifying sin. Eventually, homosexuality is taught to be normal when clearly it's not normal. Pornography is just an expression of a healthy sexual appetite rather than a cancer of the mind. Killing babies is the right of a mother over her own body rather than the murder of a helpless victim. And that's what happens when the conscience is seared. Now, do you see what's happening in America today? The Apostle Paul wrote about homosexuality in Romans chapter 1 he wrote about that sin and he said you can go so far into us that into this that God will turn you over to a reprobate mind you know what that means being turned over to a reprobate mind you know what that means it means the point of no return it means that you can keep on justifying your sin and you can go into it you can say this is right and what you're doing is digging the hole of depravity deeper. Now, some of you might be doing that. If you're not doing it, you may have some loved ones that are doing it, and they resist you. You point out their sin, and you try to get them to turn away from it, and they get angry about it, and they get defensive about it, and they resist you, and thus they resist the message from God. And they go deeper and deeper into sin, and they say, Oh, there's nothing wrong with this. This is nothing, nothing wrong with this. This sin makes me happy. This is the thing that I need to do. I need to do it for me. This is what makes me feel good. I deserve to be happy. And you may be doing that, or you may know someone that's doing that, and that is nothing less than the depth of man's depravity that causes it. And the human heart will follow that path only so long, and then God's going to say, that's enough. And he'll cut you off. And then you wait until you reach the brim of the cup, and then he flips it over and pours it out on you. The wrath of God's judgment is poured out on you. The other day I had a good conversation with someone. We were discussing what causes greater punishment in hell. And this brother that I was speaking to had a good assessment. And we had a good conversation about it. And as we were talking, we came to the conclusion there are two things that cause greater punishment in hell. Number one would be the amount of sins that you commit. 
The more sin that you commit, the greater the punishment that you have in hell. But do you know what number two is? And more important than that, do you know what heats the, the fires of hell seven times hotter? It is the rejection of Jesus Christ. It's the continual rejection of Christ. And God sends prophets. He sends preachers. He gave us a Bible. We have gospel tracts. We have Christian workers. We have Christian literature. And people still keep rejecting Christ. God sends all of that to us and people continue to turn away. They continue to reject. And you know what's happening? This is the cup of wrath that is filling up. And someday God's going to dump it out. Now these Jews of Jesus' time, they were guiltier than ever. They were guiltier than ever. They were guiltier than the Old Testament prophets and you know, or the people that lived in the time of the Old Testament prophets. And you know why? Because those people hadn't seen Christ. Those people had not been in the presence of Christ. But these people here in the New Testament that Jesus is speaking to, they had seen Christ. They'd seen the miracles. They saw people that were raised from the dead. They, they saw all of that, and still they crucified Jesus. And then when they knew that he had risen from the dead, they paid people to say that he didn't. And so what do you think that God was going to do with that? Just what Jesus said. How can you escape the damnation of hell. And so we have to ask the same thing to a congregation like this. You have a preacher, you have the Bible, you can read all about this, you know about the miracles, you've read about the resurrection. And so I'm telling you, when you reject this, what is God going to do with you? Don't sin away the day of grace. Don't wait until God says, as he said in the days of Noah, my spirit shall not always strive with man. You understand that there was a time when nobody else was going to get into that ark? That finally it came to the end and Noah was a preacher of righteousness who preached for 120 years and warned people what was to come and there came a day when there was nobody else that was going to get into that ark. And that's because they'd sinned away their day of grace. And this is what God will do. He'll withdraw from you. He'll let you fill up the cup of wrath. And then when you're through, he'll pour it out. And there is no recovery. Eternal hell waits. And there is no turning back. Now, folks, that's where these people were. They had reached the end. They were guilty of these sins that, that stretched all the way from Abel at the beginning of the New Testament, uh, Old Testament to Zacharias at the end. And they kept filling up their sins and they kept piling up their sins. Righteous men were killed. The blood was on their hands. And so God said, you are accountable and this whole system will come crashing down. And 2,000 years have passed and the Jews mourn every single day. They mourn because they're the most hated people in the world. They occupy a small portion of their land. They fight for their very existence. And you read it in the papers every day. Every day it goes on. Enemies are on every side. Millions of them have been killed in dozens of holocausts. Why? Because they rejected Christ. And God said, your house is left to you desolate. Well, that's not the end of the story. Look at verse number 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Now, number two on your listening sheet today is the lament from Christ's love. This is Jesus weeping over the destruction that's coming. And why does he weep? Because God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Pouring out wrath and sending people to hell, that doesn't delight God. But I don't want you to misunderstand me that even hell glorifies God. That God is glorified through hell because his perfect justice is done. That's what hell is. It's the perfect justice of God. It shows that God is a righteous judge and that he will not acquit the guilty. And isn't that what we expect? We expect a good judge not to acquit the guilty? Why would we expect less from the perfect judge? He'll never acquit the guilty. So Jesus wept over them because there was no delight in what was about to happen. 
The depravity and the wickedness of the human heart had no greater demonstration than what they had done in killing God's prophets. They killed the men of God, then they killed that great messenger of God, John the Baptist, and they were about to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knew that. And yet he had such a heart of compassion that he still cried out for them. He still cried for their repentance. Now, folks, what you expect me to do, you expect me to talk about Christ's love, don't you? You expect me to talk about Christ's compassion. Most people do not believe that God would do any of the things that I've just told you. They don't, they don't think he would do it. They don't think Christ is going to decree judgment on anybody. I've been to funerals of people that weren't Christians. The family knows they weren't Christians. They weren't believers. But they refuse to believe that those loved ones have died and gone to hell. And they just, they just think. They just think they're in heaven. There, there are many people who believe that sinners are justified by death. And either, in other words, the way to get to heaven is just die. I mean, you just go to heaven when you die. Everybody does that. That's not justification by faith. It's justification by death. And I'm sorry, folks, it's not true. And Christ is not crying over Jerusalem because they were all going to heaven. He cries over them because they're going to hell. He knew that hell was their destiny. And he said, I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chickens under her wings. I would have protected you. I would have saved you. And the analogy here is tender. It is a compassionate analogy. He, he's speaking of a mother hen that would give her own life for her little chickens. You know, I read a story about this the other day about a farmer who had a fire sweep very quickly through his barnyard. And after that fire was through, he went out to inspect the damage and he came across a, a mother hen that was burned to a crisp. And he went over to the mother hen and he nudged her with the toe of his boot and turned her over and to his surprise her little chickens came scurrying out from under her body and Jesus says that's just like me he says that's just like me this is what I would do for you just like that mother hen gathers her chickens and protects them this is what I would do for you. And this is what he's done for all of us who are believers. He's gathered us together under the shelter of his wings and he went to the cross and the fury of hell was poured out on him but we were protected from it because he covers us and shelters us with his grace. This is what Jesus would have done for them. But what does he say? He says, you would not. He says, you would not. Let me read to you what J.C. Ryle said about this verse. He said, Let the ground we take up be always that of the passage we are now considering. Christ would gather men, but they will not be gathered. Christ would save men, but they will not be saved. Let it be a settled principle in our religion that men's salvation, if saved, is holy of God, and that man's ruin, if lost, is holy of himself. The evil that is in us is all our own. The good, if we have any, is all of God. The saved in the next world will give God all the glory. The lost in the next world will find that they have destroyed themselves. And you wonder, is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in conflict here? Jesus saw no conflict. He says that anyone who comes to me, I will save. And if they don't come, it means they love their sin more than they love me. Now, I hope that you're not in the place that the Pharisees were. You see, there is more than enough love, compassion, and grace to save the worst sinner that ever lived. And do you know there's also enough love and mercy and grace and compassion in Jesus to save the best sinner that ever lived? And some of you might be in that place. You, you, you've trusted yourself all of this time not to do bad sins. And you live a pretty good life. But did you know that self-righteousness can actually be a greater barrier to your salvation than the one who will admit he deserves the judgment of God? The problem is that without Jesus, your heart is still wicked. You still have all of that potential there, and you need to be saved. You need to hear the message. And if you reject the message, that is the worst sin that you'll ever commit. And so people will come to church and... Well, they say, I'm innocent. I, I haven't done any of these things. 
But I want to tell you that in this message today, I've made sure that you're guilty. I've made sure that you're guilty because I've given you the truth of what Jesus did for you, what he did for sinners. And if you walk out of here without Christ, then you're as guilty as the Pharisees were. You may as well have picked up the nails and the hammer yourself. You see, God does not take kindly anyone who turns their back on Jesus. It was rejection that caused him to weep in this passage, and it was rejection that sent him to the cross. And so if you should wake up in the fires of hell, there isn't anybody to blame but you. Now this last verse, verse 39. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now thirdly, finally today, is the sight of final salvation. Now I've got some good news in the midst of all this trouble and turmoil. There's still God's promise. And the promise is as old as the Bible. In fact, in the New Testament, Jude says that Enoch, who lived before Noah, was a preacher of righteousness, and that Enoch said that the Lord was coming with ten thousands of his saints. And what Jesus says here to these people, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now, I want you to look back at chapter 21. Look back in Matthew chapter 21. Today, many people call, call this Palm Sunday. Well, this is what happened on the Sunday before Jesus arose from the dead. Matthew 21, verse number 5. The scripture says, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and followed, that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus came to Jerusalem, they hailed him as the king. They said, he is the king. But they didn't understand him as the king. And the people asked when he rode in, well, who is this? Who is this one that the people are crying out, Hosanna, who, who is this one? And in verse number 11, in verse number 11, they asked, who is he? And they said, he is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth. And you notice that they didn't say, he is Jesus, the son of God. And they didn't say, he is Jesus, the righteous and the eternal king. And they didn't say, he is Jesus, who is the Savior of the world. And they didn't say it because they didn't believe it. And so Jesus says in our passage, I'm not coming back until you believe it. And I'm not going to return until you say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And I want you to remember that when we get into chapter 24, because the 24th chapter is a defense of that statement. And in our time, now remember Jesus is speaking to Jewish people, in our time we are not going to see Israel turn to God. Not before Christ returns to take the church out. We're not going to see Israel turn to God. There'll be individual Jews that will be saved, but there'll be no large-scale movement of the Jews to return to Christ. And we see that today, that they stand at that western wall where the temple was destroyed 2,000 years ago, and what are they doing? They're still strapping on the phylacteries of the Pharisees and still doing the same things they always did. But there's the promise. Christ said there will be a kingdom and Israel will be restored. Paul addressed that in Romans 10 and 11. He said Israel will be saved, but not until Christ raptures the church from the world. Now here's what will happen when Christ comes back. There will be a period in which things will get worse than ever for the Jews. They'll be more devastated than ever, but then there's something marvelous that happens. It'll get better. God will call the Jews back. Millions of them will be saved. Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives. He'll set his foot there, that same mountain from which he ascended into heaven so long ago. And when he appears there, the oppressed Jews will say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. We just read the aftermath of that in Psalm 47 a few minutes ago. 
Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, and he will be their king, and they will believe that he is the king, and there will be a good ending. This is what the prophet Zechariah said. The same Zechariah that was killed, that we read about in verse 35, this is what Zechariah said in his prophecy. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So it's going to have a good ending. But we're looking in our passage, that ending is away from us. I don't know how long it's going to be, but it's not now. And this looks back, our passage is in their time, and there was no good ending. They rejected him, and he left Israel desolate. Now, I, I want to close with this. You've heard the message, and I can tell you that the offer of salvation, of God's grace, is on the table. And if you refuse it today, you don't have anybody to blame but you. That Christ stands here with his arms open wide and he says, Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he says, I will save you. And he says, I will keep the wrath of God from being poured out on you. He's promised all of that. And the question is, are you going to refuse that invitation? And I'll tell you, please don't, because you don't want to sin, sin away the day of grace. You will never escape the damnation of hell if you reject Jesus Christ. And here's the thing about it, folks. You don't know when that last time that you hear the gospel will be. Today might be the very day. And what you can do if you reject Christ today is you can take God to his limit and God will say, no more. Is that the day for you? Is this day the day for you? I don't know, and neither do you. So what I recommend to you, don't test God. Don't take him to his limit, because one day he's going to say, no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with a heavy heart after looking at what these scriptures so devastatingly say to those that are lost. Well, we know that our country lies in wickedness today, that people have just turned everything upside down. They've forsaken the good. They've sought after the evil. Everything is mixed up in people's minds so they no longer know what's right and what's wrong. Lord, I, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would lift that veil of darkness from their eyes and they would understand who Jesus is and they would come to him they would confess their sins, come to him in repentance and faith and be saved. As your word so clearly tells, there is a day of wrath that is coming. We don't know how soon it will be, but we know from looking everything around us that we are filling up the cup faster than ever. It's getting close to the brim, and we know that judgment is going to fall. I just pray, Lord, it would not fall on these people in this room today or anyone that we know that we can share the gospel with. Lord, Help us to understand where we stand. There is great jeopardy without Jesus Christ. So speak to some heart today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.